Well, good morning, church family. It is so sweet to be able to worship with you this morning, man. I feel like I just got done running a race. Uh, my heart is pounding. I'm a little breathless. That was a sweet time of worship, and it was just so awesome to hear your voices alongside of mine praising our great God. So thanks for your worship this morning. Um, if you are new here, welcome. I'm so thankful that you're here with us. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as the senior pastor, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. I'm excited to do that. And today we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew in a series that we have called Kingdom Come. We've covered a lot of territory over the first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And I want to give us a quick recap if you're new today. But before I get into that recap, I'm going to have our ushers come forward. And if you do not have a copy of the Bible um, and you'd like one to use today, please just throw your hand in the air because they will give you a Bible to read this morning. Um, we like for everyone to have the opportunity to study the Word of God for themselves. Right? We want to be in it together. And as you get those, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. That's going to be uh, chapter 5 is where we're at today, page 689 of the Bible that they're handing out to you right now. So go ahead and turn there, and let me just give you a quick recap, especially if you're new. There's a lot of things that we've covered in the first four chapters. So in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew's Gospel, he's unpacked the origin story of Jesus Christ, who he is, where he comes from, and he's made sure to really emphasize that Jesus has fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies, even at a young age. He's definitively showed his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. He's also shown them that Jesus is the son of David. He's the promised king that they've been waiting for. Many years they've been promised this, and he's come, he's, he's here. And he's also helped them understand that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the promised offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. Then when we got to chapter 3, Matthew even dropped a bigger bomb on us of Jesus' identity, that Jesus is actually the Son of God. He has come to save his people from their sins. These are massive truths about who Jesus is. that Tell us, he is worthy of our worship. He is so worthy. And then we got to chapter 4, where Matthew recounts how Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, goes toe-to-toe with his enemy, Satan. And he defeats him quite handily, I might add, right? Satan comes and he tries to tempt Jesus. He tries to get Jesus to follow him and and to reject God's plan for his life. But Jesus uh, does not do that. He says, no, I will follow God's will and his ways. And right after that showdown is over, Jesus goes into his public ministry. And at this point, that's where I want to slow down a moment and take a little bit more time to just look back Because what Jesus has just taught, what he's just said at the end of chapter 4 is really going to establish what comes next and what we're going to study today. So if you've got your Bibles open, you might look at uh, chapter 4, verse 17. There's two calls to action that Jesus has issued at this point. The first one is this. In verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is the crux of of Jesus's message. His whole message is based on the understanding that there is a God who rules over all. And his reign, his kingdom is drawing near to us. And so we as humans must prepare for God's rule in his reign. And the only way to do that is to repent. Well, of what? Our sins, our rebellion against the king. 
Right, Jesus is preaching, well, all that he's going to teach in what we read today and in the weeks ahead is based on the fundamental understanding that there is a God who is overall, and he has made everything, including you and including me. And as our creator, he has the right to tell us how to live, which he has done, right? We have his word given to us. This is how we're to live. And yet, that's not how we live, at least not when we first come into this world, right? We come into this world with no regard for who God is, and it's as if we called the shots for our life, as if we are the king, which is incredibly offensive. It's incredibly uh, deserving of judgment, right? We're rebelling against the righteous king. We've ignored his commands, and it's effectively like spitting in his face, right? And that's a big deal. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're told that the wages of our sin is death. That's what our rebellion earns us, judgment from the king. And that's important. We have to understand this because God's kingdom is near to us, right? That's what Jesus is telling them. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so for humans, for people like us, the nearness of the kingdom means the nearness of judgment. And so we must be ready. We must prepare ourselves for that. And the only way to prepare is to repent, which means to have a radical change of mind and a change of heart towards God that then leads to a complete life change. Right? I start to view God and myself much differently. I want to worship him, his will, his ways, not mine. And then I begin to live that out. But that means we have to own up to our own sinfulness. Or we have to admit, God, I need you to forgive me. That's a very personal choice to make. And then once that's happened, we get busy living for him, seeking him, obeying him. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples to do in the second call to action in chapter 4, verse 19. We've also hit this one, right? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now we hit that pretty hard last week. This is the call to discipleship, right? That you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus and his will and his ways. It's a radical life change. No longer is my life about me, but it's about him. Not my will, my ways, but his will, his ways. And he's the one who does the work in me and in you to change us. And as he does that work, then we get about the business of doing what he's called us to do, which is to make disciples. That's what we've been called to do, to go fishing for others who need to know Jesus and follow him. We call out to them, follow Jesus. That's what we're here for. And understanding all of that, what's come before, is so key to knowing what's coming next. Right? And so if you look at the very end of the gospel of Matthew, or at the end of chapter 4, when we left off two weeks ago, Jesus had just gone on this ministry tour of Galilee. Right? He'd gone over, all over the place, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to them, right? And he showed his power and his authority by healing illnesses and, and freeing people from demonic oppression. He was demonstrating that he is the son of God. He's demonstrating his authority over all things. He's worthy of worship. And if you look at the end of verses 24 and 25, there's this kind of summary where it says, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea 
and from beyond the Jordan. Now, we got a map here. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it. This is Israel. Um, and up in the north there is the Sea of Galilee. And this green is where Jesus ministered throughout his life. But even at the beginning of his ministry, he's already having a profound effect. And what Matthew's trying to point out is that people from the northwest, the northeast, the southwest, the southeast, they were all coming to hear from Jesus. They wanted to sit and learn from him. They wanted to benefit from his power and his authority, right? They wanted that healing. They wanted freedom from demonic oppression. So big reach, big extensive reach. But one thing we have to realize is, is you can't be fooled by this. Not everyone was there responding to Jesus the same way. Back when we started this series, I mentioned we're going to see four groups of people in the gospel, and they each have their own kind of response to Jesus and his teachings. So let me remind you of who they are. The first group was the religious leaders, right? So these are the people who are in charge of the Jewish religion, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they're opposed to Jesus, They do not like what he stands for. He threatens their power and their authority, and so they oppose him. The second group are the crowds, right? And so this is the group we've heard a lot about. They're large. uh, They're excited. They're seeing what Jesus is doing, and they want to be around it, but they're noncommittal, right? They're not willing to take up their cross and follow him. The third group is the disciples. These are the people who are wanting to grow in their faith. They are wanting to sit at Jesus' feet and apply what he's learning, even though they struggle to obey, even though they do have repeated failures in their walk. They're growing. And then the fourth group will be the demons. The demons acknowledge Jesus. They know his identity. They know who he is, but they hate him for it. They have no desire to worship him. And so far in the Gospel of Matthew, our focus has predominantly been on the crowds. That's who's received the most attention. These are the people that are all around Jesus, but they're really only there for what he can give them. Jesus, I want your benefits. Give me healing. Give me freedom. But what we're about to see is they're not really committed to following him as disciples. And we're actually at a major turning point in the Gospel of Matthew because where we're going next is... Well, let me just show you. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1, okay? Open up to chapter 5, verse 1, and let's read this. I'll read it aloud. You follow along. It says here, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay? So there it is. He sees the crowds, right? There's great crowds following him, and Jesus' response is to go up on a mountain, or more literally, a high hill, and to sit down and allow his disciples to come to him. Right? He's, he's directing his primary attention and teaching to those who are serious about obeying him and following him. And what he's about to do is to share with them, here's what it looks like to follow me, to be a disciple, to be kingdom people. And if you were to go all the way to the end of the sermon at chapter 7, you would see the crowds are still there. They're listening in. Right? He didn't run away from them, but they are not the primary focus anymore. The primary focus is training up his disciples. So you ready? You ready to hear what it it sounds like to be trained up to be a disciple of Christ? All right, that was kind of weak, but I hope that your inner heart is is more excited for it. Let's look back at the text, chapter 5, verse. we're going to read verses 2 through 12. Okay, here we go. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now that is the start of what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And that sermon is actually going to stretch over the next several chapters of Matthew's gospel, all the way to the end of chapter 7. And we're going to spend uh, quite a few weeks here just sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him about what it looks like to follow him, to be his disciples, because there's a lot to learn. And what we just read, what you just heard, is what's known as the Beatitudes, right? which means blessedness. These are the things that, a series of teachings that describe the character of someone who follows God and of whom God approves, of whom he blesses. And if you were paying attention, right, there's a pretty common theme or format there, how they, how they flow. So they start with a declaration of blessing, right? That's the first thing you read. And then right after that comes a required character for that, that to be true of you, a required character quality. And then the the beatitude, the blessedness ends with a, here's the result of the blessing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study those in, in more detail. And to help us, I've tried to group them into three distinctives of God's people. Three distinctives of God's people. That's what we're here to study today. And if you're wondering, well, what in the world is a distinctive anyways? That's a wor- weird word. I don't use that. Here's what it means. It means to mark something as separate or different. It serves to distinguish, meaning there's something different about those who follow Jesus than those who are not following Jesus, the rest of the world. There's something that should set them apart. They should look and act and live differently. And you would expect that because what did Jesus call them to do? Repent, right? Repent. Stop living the old way. Change and go a different way. Live in my ways. And so what does that look like? What does it look like for God's kingdom people to be distinct and different? Well, here's one way that they're distinct. They depend on God. They depend on God. Now, I think we have to be careful here because I think using that word depend um, can just conjure up a bunch of different meanings. So um, what I don't mean by depend is something like, well, I depend on the bus to show up on time so I can get to school. Or, I depend on hot water being in my shower every morning so I can enjoy the experience. That's too light and fluffy when we talk about depend. Um, no, what I'm, when we say we depend on God, it means something like this. I depend on oxygen to survive. I depend on my heart to keep beating to survive. I depend on gravity to still be working properly when I wake up every morning. Right? We need those things in order to function and in order to live That's how we depend on God. That's how followers of Christ depend on God. They need him. 
And let's look at how this dependence shows up in what Jesus just taught us. We're going to primarily look at verses 3 through 6 right now. These verses reveal the character of someone who is dependent on God. So we're going to take them in order. It starts with this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? The poor in spirit are those who are brought low. Those who recognize who they are before a holy God. Right? They're, they're not arrogant or proud saying, look at me. But instead they're saying, look at him. Woe is me. And that comes back to us having a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. Kingdom people understand that God is perfect in every way, that he is holy, that he's without flaw, that he is, has no imperfections, and that he is worthy. We are not. And so to be poor in spirit means that I, conf- I confess that apart from God, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need him. I depend on him. And that was the cry of the prophet Isaiah when he had a vision of God. Let me share this uh, with you from Isaiah chapter 6. Here's how Isaiah responds when he has this vision of God. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And they call, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And here's Isaiah's response. I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. And I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah has this vision of who God is, he's wrecked. God, curse me. I am not worthy to be in your presence. He recognized how much God was worthy of praise. And as you think about this for your life, how do you conduct yourself from day to day? Are you saying... Uh, look at me, I am worthy in the way that you act and live and walk through your day? Is that what someone who's poor in spirit is like? No, someone who's poor in spirit says, look to him. He alone is worthy. That's what we do. And so if you're here and you're, you know, consistently going around talking about yourself, look at me, look at how great of a husband I am, look at how great of a father I am. Man, I am a good pastor or whatever your job is. Are you poor in spirit? It's time to repent and follow Jesus if that's how we live. And what we're going to see as we continue through these Beatitudes, it's, it's really the meek and the mild who inherit the kingdom of God. Not the proud and the boisterous. Not those who are puffing themselves up. And Jesus finishes this blessing with the result of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. One who is poor in spirit knows that they will be with God, that they have that hope. That is a great hope for us as disciples of Jesus. Well, immediately following that, he says, blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who mourn. And this is the one that um, I've been chewing on the most out of these. It's the one that's been really convicting, and, and I see that I have a lot of room to grow here. And the idea of mourning is that you are grieved by your sins, and you're grieved by the sins of those around you. That, you know, uh, things matter to you. You're not taking it lightly. And so when, you know, back, going back to this context, when Jesus came, when he said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the appropriate response for those who heard that was to weep, was to mourn, because they should have realized, we're not ready. God is coming back, and we are not ready. And are we any more ready today? All right, look at the state of our world. Look at the state of our country, of our own lives Right? We're in a day and age where murdering the unborn, and even now, murdering the recently born is a protected right. Where pornography is, the industry has grown bigger than ever. Marriages and families are in shambles, and many churches have abandoned the gospel. That's serious, right? There's a lot of serious stuff happening. And the only appropriate response is to mourn that to be grieved by it, and to take our sin seriously. And we have to start with ourselves, right? with your own sin. You can't change anyone else. I can't change you. You can't change me. But you know who you can change? You. I love what Jesus teaches later in this very sermon. In Matthew 7, 3 to 5, he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying, hey, stop focusing on others. Stop pointing the finger at others and start dealing with your part, how you've contributed to the problem. Change yourself first. And as you deal with your log, which is quite massive, by the way, then you'll see clearly to help your brother or sister with their speck. Again, great teaching for disciples. And as you consider this, are you intentionally evaluating how you sin so you can deal with it? And maybe you're thinking, oh, great, here we go. He's getting personal now. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I think that we all would give ourselves a much higher grade on this test than we we actually deserve. I think that's true for me, at least. But I think that I'm pretty good at identifying and dealing with my sin. But then I stop and I consider the thoughts that run through my brain on any given day. Or I think about the way that I speak to my children when I'm frustrated with them. Or I look at how I respond when I'm overwhelmed by what God has allowed into my life and where I turn for comfort. And I realize, okay, I don't mourn sin like I thought I did. Someone who mourns sin has to first recognize it in themselves. How do you do that? Well, do you know what is the the most common sin that you struggle with each day? Maybe you say, how do I know that? Well, a good way to evaluate is, what have you been confessing lately? What have you been asking forgiveness for lately? And you might say, wait, uh, what? I don't do that on a, on a regular basis. Well, both confession and forgiveness are a regular part of following Christ. 
Why would you not be doing that? That ought to be a regular part of your uh, daily routine. They're essential parts of the Christian walk to help us keep a clean account with the Lord and with one another. We ought to be doing this. And what I'd like to ask you to do right now is let's just put our cards on the table so we're all on the same page here. Um, You are a sinner, and I am a sinner. There's no reason to try to hide that. There's no reason to pretend like we're not. The question is, what do you do with your sin once it's out there, once you have sinned? God has given us a way forward. He's called us to confess, which means to agree with God with what he would say about it. This is sin, honey. And then the next step is to ask forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? Be specific. Ask the question. Will you forgive me for yelling at you or whatever it was? And then to repent, turn from it, to go a different way, to live differently. And if you're not in the regular, and I would even say daily habit of doing this, something's wrong. Because you are a sinner and I am a sinner and we need to repent of sin. You are not mourning sin. So I want to encourage you to spend some time today, after we're gone from here, just wrestling on that one, chewing on that one, and evaluating, okay, Lord, where do I need to change? And if you're not able to see clearly, then ask your spouse if you're married. Dangerous, right? <laughs> it's a way to, way to grow. Ask your roommate if you're not married. Ask your small group accountability partners. I guarantee you they see some things that need to change in your life. Invite accountability into your life and ask them to help you kill sin. And we can't talk about killing sin without me sharing one of my favorite quotes from John Owen. Here's the quote. He says, do you mortify, which means do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the level of seriousness that we need to view this with. Sin is trying to kill you. Are you actively, day by day, seeking to kill it first? And Jesus finishes this particular blessing with the result, you will be comforted. Right? That's the promise. It's pointing to Jesus. He is the one who is the answer to our mourning, to our grief over our sin. He replaces our mourning with gladness. He died so that we could be forgiven. What a beautiful hope. And I've heard it put this way. For every look that you take at yourself, meaning your own sin and brokenness, you need to take 10 looks at Christ and his forgiveness, what he has done for you. And as you mourn over your sin, you should also look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, for that promise of forgiveness. That is a comforting blessing, right? We get to experience it here on this earth, but it's going to be realized in full when we're in heaven, when we're with him. And we're no more sin, no more sadness anymore. Well, the next thing Jesus tells us about depending on God, he says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. And and the meek are those who are gentle, those who are humble, those who are courteous. So you see maybe a theme here that disciples of Jesus are not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about others, right? They have a humble view of self. They want to serve others. They want to bless others which again comes from understanding who we are in light of who he is. And we have a great example of meekness, don't we? 
Jesus himself. He is the perfect example of meekness. He's the one who didn't come to assert his own will, but came to do the will of the Father. Right? Remember who this guy is. He's the son of God, God in human form. He has all power and all authority. He's already shown that he can heal illnesses. He can uh, cast out demons. He's going to eventually raise the dead to life. Pretty amazing things. And yet we're told that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's marked by being a suffering servant. What a great example for his followers to learn from. We need to live that way. And so I would encourage you to evaluate, what is your manner of life? Are you known for meekness? Or are you, again, known for pride and boasting in self? How would your family describe you? Your coworkers, would they say, oh yeah, she's meek, or he's, he's meek, he's humble and courteous? Or would they use different terms to describe you? God's kingdom people are meek people. And again, if you're realizing, oh my goodness, I'm not meek, then again, the call is to repent and follow him. Ask God to humble you. I guarantee you he'll answer that prayer, right? He delights to answer that prayer. And ask others to walk alongside of you to help you grow in meekness. And the fascinating outcome of this particular blessing is that the meek shall inherit the earth. Right? The promise, again, is it's not the arrogant who win. They're not the conquerors. It's the humble. It's those who are gentle, those who are courteous. They will inherit the earth. The word earth also could mean land. They will inherit the land. He's talking again about the eternal kingdom of God the new heavens and the new earth, they will be with God. Those who depend on God are also shown in the fourth beatitude as blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is uh, someone who loves the Lord expressing it through a desire for what is righteous. Right? And if you remember, we've defined righteousness before. It's wanting what God wants. It's, It's desiring his will to be done and seeking that out. So God's people, they long to live according to his will. They want to obey him. Is that your deepest desire? Is that the cry of your heart? Lord, I want to please you. Help me obey. God, help me to do what honors you today. God wants a people that also long for the day when everyone else desires righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. So not just that that's how we function, but that's how everyone functions, right? That righteousness would sweep across the land, that we would have a people who would just love to honor God and to please him and to walk with him. And what I think is interesting about that description is that that's really defining what the church is called to be and what the nation of Israel is called to be, that we are to be a people who love God's will and and want to accomplish God's will that we're here because we want to please him and we want to obey him. I don't know about you, but I've had the privilege um, at different points in my life and even in the last month to be around people that are about that. They want God's righteousness. They hunger and they thirst for it. And it is such a sweet, sweet fellowship. Right? When you know that the people you're with, your brothers and sisters, they're, you know, they're on the same page. And imagine if that was in our small groups right? How invigorating the discussion would be if everyone wanted that and was living for that. Or in your family, 
it is so good that we know that we love the Lord and we're seeking to please Him together. A lot of fun, a lot of joy as we're on the same page. And I, I hope and pray that that's what our church grows to be. And I've seen growth in that, and praise God. I mean, God is moving week after week, and it is so cool to watch it. But we're not there yet, right? We still have a lot of growth to be done. So may we be committed to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And again, the result of this blessing is that though those who desire this, they will be satisfied, right? They will be satisfied. Well, when is that going to happen, Lord? In his eternal kingdom, right? So we get a taste of it here. We get a glimpse of it here. But ultimately, when he comes again and he ushers in his righteousness, then that desire will be fully satisfied. Now, right, none of that is going to be possible if we're not completely, utterly dependent on God. We cannot accomplish this on our own. We need him. And that's why we are dependent on him. That's why it's a distinctive of God's people. It sets them apart. The second distinctive of God's people is that they live for God. They live for God. And so the first four Beatitudes, they're focused more on your relationship with God. But now the next three we're going to look at are more focused on how you relate to others. A disciple lives for God, and it shows up in a variety of ways. Again, let's look at the first one here. Verse 7, we read this. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. What that means is that um, the merciful, the people of God who are merciful, are showing forgiveness for those who are guilty. They're willing to extend forgiveness to those who are guilty, and they're also willing to extend compassion towards those who are in need, those who are hurting and suffering. That's what it means to be merciful. Instead of getting your pound of flesh... You're seeking to point them to Christ and their need for him. You stand ready to forgive. (laughs) I love the example of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, we're not going to have time to go and read that parable, but um, it's in Luke 15. If you want to write that down, Luke 15, and go read it later today. I'm going to try to summarize it for us real quick. In that parable, there is a father with two sons. And, uh, you know, they've got this big estate is what the, the parable shows. And what happens is the younger son comes to his dad And he demands his half of the inheritance. He essentially is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can I just have my half of the inheritance right now? Right? How disrespectful. How humiliating. And yet, the father complies. He gives his son what he asked for. And so the son goes off, and he lives in a very foolish way, right? He squanders all that money, lives it up, has the party life. But then he comes to the end of that money, and he's left destitute, and he has not even food for his belly. And so one day when he's in the midst of, you know, starvation, he realizes, oh, I can go back to my family, go back to my father, and I can beg him for forgiveness and ask him to just hire me on as a servant on his estate. What do you think is going to happen to the son when he comes home? Right? You'd expect that the father's going to kind of give him what's coming to him, along with a nice I told you so, speech. But what happens is much different. Let me actually show you this. This is from Luke 15, verse 20. Here's what happens. And he, this is the son, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What? 
His father saw him from a long way off. That implies that you know, during the day, the father was standing, looking off into the distance, wondering, is today the day when my son comes home? Right? And then when he sees his son, he does the most undignified thing that a Jewish adult male could have done in that day and age. He gets his robes and he gathers them up so he can run down the, the road to meet him and to greet him and to hug him and embrace him. Right? Amazing. And the, the, the Jews who would have heard that story would have been absolutely shocked. They would have had stones in hand because they were ready to stone the son for his disrespect and the way he treated his family. That's a powerful picture of the mercy of God because God is the father. That's the point of the parable. God is the father and we are the wayward son. We are the ones who you know, spit in our heavenly father's face. We go our own way and, and yet when we return, when we're ready to ask for forgiveness... He stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to invite you back into the family. It's amazing. An amazing picture. So followers of Jesus, we ought to be a merciful people because we have been shown great mercy. We have no business being unmerciful. God looked upon you as a sinner, and when you were ready to confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. He said, I forgive you. He forgave you. He saved you. And as we see at the end of verse 7, you see the result of that blessing is those who are merciful will receive mercy from God. How sweet that is. He showers us with his mercies. Well, then we read, blessed are the pure in heart. And pure in heart, that conveys the idea of being single-minded in your focus I mean, being true to what God's plan is for your life, his will for you. So someone who is pure in heart, they're seeking to to live for God each and every day. They're wanting to do what God would want them to do. And if you think about this, I mean, what we've already covered is, is pretty daunting, right? For a disciple, like, God wants me to do what? And now we get to this, pure in heart? You're telling me that to follow you, Jesus, I have to make every aspect of my life about what you want. Oh my goodness, Lord, what are you asking of me? There's no way we could do this apart from him working in and through us. Right? That's what this is highlighting. We need him to do a work in us. We can't do it on our own. It's only by God's extravagant grace that we grow into this type of man or woman. Now, don't raise your hand, but would anyone here claim to be doing everything perfectly, everything for the Lord in your life? And I hope you would say, absolutely not. I can't claim that. Lord, help me. I need to grow in this. And that's, that's the truth, right? We need to be praying regularly about this. God, I recognize I'm not pure in heart. My, my, my motives, my attention, my desires are divided all over the place. Would you help me to live for you? Lord, help me to put on these things that you've called me to as a disciple. It's the pure in heart who shall see God. That's the, that's the result. They'll be with him where he is. Again, the hope of heaven. Tremendous hope. The last quality in this particular distinctive is blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus is calling those who follow him to be unifiers, to bring people together, not to divide them. Right? That's the path that he walked. It's the example that he set. He made peace possible. Not only between Man and man, or woman and woman, or man and woman, but between man and God. He is a peacemaker. What about you? 
Are you a peacemaker? Are you uniting people or dividing them? What's your, what's your modus operandum? Do you sweep sin under the rug or do you deal with it biblically and handle it in a way that God would want? Disciples are called to make peace, even where there isn't peace. Think that's going to be hard? Yeah. Will that cost you something? Absolutely it will, won't it? But it's the example of Christ. Consider what Christ paid to bring peace for us. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, it says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What did our peace cost Christ? cost him his life. He had to bear the wrath of God on his broken body on our behalf, right? Our peace with God, our peace with one another was extremely costly to the Savior of the world. And so don't, don't be here this morning making excuses of why you're quick to anger and slow to forgiveness. That's just the way that I am. That's how God wired me. No, that's not acceptable. That's an excuse, God's people, people who are part of his kingdom, must keep the peace, and they must seek to make peace. If peace is not found in areas of your life, then go there and cultivate it. Disciples resolve division. They don't create it. They help address bitterness and strife and anger. So as you think about this, as you think about, well, what does that mean for me? What would it look like for you to be a peacemaker in your home or in your workplace or wherever it is that you know that there's conflict between you and others? Or maybe it's not even between you and others, but others are having conflict. How could you enter into that and be a peacemaker, a unifier? So far, uh, our two distinguishments, right? God's people distinguish from the world by being people who depend on God and people who live for God. Here's the third distinctive. God's people endure opposition to God. They endure opposition to God. And this is the the finishing up of this particular section of the sermon, right? Where he's talking about the blessings and what Jesus says is, you will suffer if you follow me. You will suffer at the hands of others who hate God. Because you're living differently, because you're distinct, people will be opposed to you. They will notice. And he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So if you are following Jesus, you will be persecuted for how you live and for who you follow. So as you're walking out obedience to Jesus in your life, you can just expect that it's going to invite opposition in. Right? Satan hates to see Christians living out their faith. You can bet that he's going to be opposed to you at every way that he can. And also the world, those who hate God, will oppose you because they hate him and they hate righteousness and they don't want to see it prevail. They will treat you poorly. And Jesus goes on to explain, here's what that's going to look like in verses 11 and 12. He says, you will be reviled, you will be persecuted, you will have all kinds of evil uttered about you falsely on my account. It's because of Jesus, because you follow him, that's why those things will happen. That's why you're receiving that treatment. And frankly, what an honor. 
Because what that says is you are living out your faith. You are walking in a way that people notice. Let's be honest. It's really easy to hide our faith. It's really easy to keep it in the background of our lives. Oh, yeah, I'll read the Bible, but only in the privacy of my home. I'll talk about Jesus, but only to my kids or my spouse. I'll go to church on Sundays, but I'm not going to bring that up at the workplace or in the public realm, wherever it may be. It's far too easy for us to go about our daily lives and for our coworkers, our neighbors, whoever it is, to have no idea that we follow and worship Jesus. They don't have a reason to expect that. You don't open your mouth. You don't share why you do the things that you do and why you have this faith. Or even worse, you do open your mouth and you tell them that you follow Jesus and you live in a way that completely contradicts it and brings disrepute to his name. That's not good either. And what Jesus calls his disciples to is a lifestyle of obedience to God, which will bring sufferings and we should expect it. So if you're here and you are suffering because of your faith in Christ, praise God for that. That's what Jesus calls you to do. The appropriate response is rejoice and be glad. Why in the world would I rejoice in suffering, persecution? Because your reward is great in heaven. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What a great promise. What a great deal you're getting here. God blesses those who endure opposition to him. And as you think about all of this, right, this is a lot. I know it's a lot of content in these 12 verses here. We've learned a lot about what it means to be a kingdom person, someone who's following Jesus. And as you just kind of think about this and allow it to soak in, like, who could truly do this, right? That's kind of the point. Part of his sermon here is Jesus is trying to help us understand, like, no one can do this on our own strength, apart from him enabling you, working in you, and through you to do this. Right? This, is, this is what Jesus is driving his disciples to understand. You can't do this on your own. You ought to despair, but only long enough to turn your eyes to Christ and have your hope in him. Run to him because he has made a way for us. He has brought us peace with God through his own shed blood. He's the one who provides forgiveness. And for his disciples, he gives us the Holy Spirit, the helper who enables us to do these things and to change in these ways. And so as we wrap up our time together this morning, what I hope you will do at this point is consider where do I stand in relationship to Jesus? Do I know him? Am I one of his disciples? Am I eager to follow him, committed to that, even though I fail, even though I fall day by day, week by week? Or am I one of the crowd? I get excited for Jesus. I get excited for the blessings that he gives me or that I might be able to receive from him, but I'm not really interested in following him. We really have to figure that out. Where do you fit? That matters both now and for eternity. And if, if, you know, if you think about that and you have questions, you're wrestling with some stuff, let's talk about that. I'd love to chat with you after the service or set up a time, let's do that and get coffee this week. Now, if you didn't know this, uh, the month of March is a month where we're emphasizing two pillars of our church. We're emphasizing passionate worship and fervent prayer. And the challenge at the end of the month, or the, throughout the month rather, is to memorize the pillar of fervent prayer which is Jeremiah 33, verse 3. So over the last two months, we've tackled uh, bold preaching, we've tackled passionate worship, and this month we're, we're tackling fervent prayer. And so I just want to remind you of that. I want to ask you to commit to doing this, storing up God's word in your heart that, he might not, that you might not sin against him. 
And also on your way out, we've got the, um, the prayer emphasis for March, which is praying over being a people of passionate worship. And so uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on the stage now. And as we get ready to sing and lift our voices to our great God, I hope that we would passionately worship him, begin to center our life around him, that that would be our cry, that that would be the desire of our hearts. Lord, let my life be about you. Lord, help me to seek you fervently, passionately, day by day. Would you stand and let's sing together.